Hello, everyone, and welcome to American Civil War and UK History. Remember, we're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we'll, it will be available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And I'm also now part of the Unfiltered Historian team as well. So that's exciting to be part of that. So joining me today is author, historian, professor of ethics and history at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. And, and you also might remember him from a very good TV series that recently came out about Grant. It's Dr. Barton Myers. Welcome, Barton. Well, thank you, Darren, for having me with your program. I appreciate it. Oh, so... We're here to talk about guerrilla warfare and irregular warfare during the American Civil War because it's not talked about enough, but Barton has done a lot of research and over, it, over his time as being a historian into this. So if there's anyone that knows about this, it's going to be Barton. So we're going to touch on that, you know. So as we know, the Civil War ran from 1861 to 65. Uh, there were different types of guerrilla warfare during this time. Categorized into different categories. So, Barton, please tell us a little bit about the different categories of of civil, uh, you know, um, irregular warfare there are at the time, please. Yeah, I mean, when we typically we typically think about irregular warfare uh, during the American Civil War and uh, in the nineteenth century, the mid nineteenth century, really talking about four different. Uh, types of irregulars that we see fighting and that are kind of overlapping within uh, the con the big conflict we call the American Civil War. Um, you have the authorized um, irregulars, the partisan rangers, the um, uh, small war operators, uh, they engage in petite guerre that are authorized by the Confederate Congress, by the Jefferson Davis administration during the course of the war, actually under a congressional act that's passed into law in April of 1862. Um, that act is in effect about 22 months during the course of the war. The most probably well-known uh, partisan ranger operator during the war is John Singleton Mosby, who commands the 43rd Battalion of Virginia Cavalry up in Northern Virginia in uh, what's known as Mosby's Confederacy, uh, four counties right outside of Washington, D.C. He's probably the most famous, but um, the vast majority of the people in that program are, are not as well-known. Um, you're talking about company size, battalion size, even regimental uh, level commands that are recruited under the Partisan Ranger Act. And for many, many years, scholars have been trying to figure out exactly how many of those folks are out there. Um, we still don't have great estimates on it, uh, but we know that there are um, there are scores of these units that were recruited by the Confederate government uh, under just the authorized portion of this act. Um, secondly, you have self-constituted groups. I think some of these are probably the more well-known uh, guerrilla warfare practitioners during the American Civil War. Um, you have people like uh, Champion Ferguson uh, down in Tennessee, a Tennessee mountain guerrilla, um, very, you know, occasionally very brutal individuals, but many of them not particularly well-known by name. Um, we, we've only now begun to kind of unearth uh, memoirs of some of these individuals. Many of them were, were illiterate, so they didn't leave behind a, a particularly great written record for us to work with. So oftentimes we're dealing with very episodic uh, scholarly information and evidence in order to piece together the lives and the stories of some of these self-constituted localized guerrilla bands. And their loyalty really ran the, the, the continuum, the gamut um, in terms of political loyalty on uh, on the home front. Some of them were Southern Unionists who were fighting back against the Confederacy. Uh, some of them were um, 
some of them were neutral citizens who were just kind of try to ride the fence between both large armies that are fighting. And then, and then some of them are, are Confederates nominally who are not in the regular army, but are either cooperating with or consider themselves uh, Southern sympathizing in their loyalty and kind of fighting their own um, self-directed uh, war. Um, here, if, you, if you've ever seen the Matthew McConaughey movie based on the Victoria Bynum book, uh, The Free State of Jones, um, that, that's a, a good representation of a self-constituted group, in that case out in Mississippi, uh, fighting back against Confederate conscription, uh, fighting back against the Confederate government at the local level. Really fascinating uh, film that was, I think, really well done. Uh, McConaughey plays Newt Knight, who is the, uh, the leader of that particular organization. Um, after that, you have um, regular cavalry officers who are adept practitioners at, ra at uh, raiding warfare. People like John Hunt Morgan uh, come to mind. Even a guy like Jeb Stewart occasionally um, operated independently enough and engaged in raiding warfare enough to be considered irregular in terms of his, uh, his tactics and strategy uh, during the war, uh, even though a commissioned officer. Uh, Morgan kind of falls um, into this category also known as people's war, which is a kind of analytical approach to understanding um, irregular warfare in the 19th century context. If you read Carl von Clausewitz's book on war, for example, uh, most people uh, skip over this section, but he has an entire chapter actually focused on uh, people's war and the rising population. John Hunt Morgan was essentially trying to do that in Kentucky. He was trying to accumulate Southern sympathizing uh, pro-slaveholding people to his command and kind of um, rally the support um, in favor of the Confederacy in the border South slave states that had not seceded uh, to join the Confederacy. So um, John Hunt Morgan's a fascinating guy, very charismatic, uh, was considered very good looking uh, during the war, uh, though he is losing his hair, his hairline's kind of receding and you can see the pictures. Fascinating guy gets captured in uh, July, 1863, same month as the Battle of Gettysburg. And he's really involved in kind of the high watermark of Confederate raiding warfare along the border south and along the Ohio River. He's kind of uh, the beau ideal practitioner there. And then, you know, there's this kind of fourth level of, of irregular warfare that involves individual, self-directed, uh, occasionally operating all alone actors. Um, sometimes people just call them assassins. Sometimes people call them terrorists during the war. Um, but, but people who are operating very much alone. Um, here, uh, you got a, a guy like Samuel Hildebrandt, um, who his um, sons were killed by the Union Army. And they come by his house. He goes out um, kind of on his own, fighting his own one-man war, uh, attacking and trying to uh, revenge the deaths of his sons. So, um, so you, have, you have several different levels here. And you know, I think that we can, we can kind of tease out specifics, but um, they overlap during the war. Um, the, the big question is always how many, uh, you know, how many units, how, how big did this get? Um, the short answer is that there is irregular warfare in every single state that seceded during the course of the conflict. At the county and local level, we're still teasing out what regions uh, where it was most prevalent. But if you look at a state like um, North Carolina, where I wrote a book, you know, you, you have a, a pretty significant number of the counties in a state with more than 90 counties. You have more than a third of those counties in the state 
uh, by the end of 1864 that are immersed in one of these types of irregular warfare, uh, whether it's a resistance to the Confederate government itself and its, and its forces, a kind of occupation at home resistance by Southerners, or is it a jailbreak like you have up in Yadkin County, up in the Western Highlands? Um, you know, kind of sometimes during the war, irregular warfare looks like criminality too. Um, so when you see uh, violence during the war, it's often really good to look at motivations first and figure out what's going on. Because I, I think that's one of the things that guerrilla warfare and guerrilla studies does for us. It, it gets us thinking about the types of violence, how they're used during the war, and you know, what is the line between warfare and criminal violence? Um, that's something that I think this field has really done a good job at collectively, the, the scholars who are working in it, to, to push forward into the fore, uh, that the Civil War really was a civil war, that it was a civil war even in a localized way um, in the border, in the South, um, occasionally even in the North over um, US conscription. So um, it's, I think it's still, it remains one of the most promising areas for new unearthed um, sources and, and new research, really exciting. Um, and it's, you know, I'm certainly not the only person working in this field, but I think it's just a very exciting one for, for possibilities of, of understanding what a civil war uh, looks like. Yes, definitely. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, yeah, so um, could you explain in a little bit more detail about the Partisan Ranger Act, please? Oh, sure. Um, so the Partisan Ranger Act is... <clears throat> is interesting because it kind of begins as the brainchild of, of, of a senator from Kentucky, a Confederate senator from Kentucky, who is, um, uh, or excuse me, he's a, he's a uh, representative from Kentucky, a congressman who is close by John Hunt Morgan's area of operations early on, uh, the Green uh, River District of Kentucky. And he's sort of watching the early operations of um, John Hunt Morgan, seeing him operate and thinks, you know, there are people who are just not going to go into the regular army. Um, and this guy's name is Henry Cornelius Burnett. And Burnett sort of sees the possibility for maximizing manpower behind the line. And for guys who were not going to join up, who don't go in that rage military in 1861 that draws in a lot of other Confederates into the regular army, he's like, why, why don't we try to bring these people in by forming these more localized units that can be behind the lines, support the cause? And, you know, it sounds exciting. It's easy to sell. It's easy to sell um, a more individualized type of warfare, one that sounds a lot more uh, like you might be able to impress the folks back home with deeds of noble daring. I mean, it just sounds like a far more um, exciting type of war to be involved in. Plus, he's drawing upon a legacy, and, and the folks in the Confederate Congress who agree with him are drawing upon this legacy of the American Revolution and a, a strong belief in uh, you know, the history of people like Light Horse Harry Lee in Virginia, who was a partisan uh, leader there and the father of uh, Robert Edward Lee, um, or um, Charles um, uh, uh, Thomas Sumner um, in, um, in South Carolina, or uh, the Swamp Fox, Francis Marion down in South Carolina, who are uh, well-known, people read about them uh, during the American Civil War and before. Uh, John Singleton Mosby himself, uh, who becomes a partisan ranger, was very heavily influenced by reading 
of Parson Weems' biography of Francis Marion whenever he was young. So, so this, is, this kind of historic legacy is also out there that they're drawing upon. And by the time it gets through Confederate, the Confederate Congress in April of 1862, they're also drawing upon a state-level act in Virginia that had been passed to form Virginia state uh, ranger units. So there was a kind of legal precedent at the state level there. But by and large, what they're trying to do is maximize manpower in every single way they can in April of 1862. They passed the Confederate Conscription Act in April of 1862, and they passed the Partisan Ranger Act in April of 1862. So um, we'd be remiss if we didn't relate what's going on to a big debate within the Confederacy about flagging volunteerism and a need for more troops um, to go into battle, what, whether that be in the border south uh, or in the regular army. So a, a lot of it is about trying to maximize um, Southern manpower over um, and, and draw upon that Southern Elan, that belief in an individualized type of warfare. Uh-huh. And it was repealed in February of 64. So why was that? It is. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's partially what the results are, which are fairly limited. Um, there are some high profile units that are very successful, like John Mosby, like John Hans McNeil, but a lot of the units that are recruited by 1863, um, they, by late 1863, early 1864, they have already been absorbed back into the regular Confederate army. They have been reorganized and it's a very chaotic process, Uh, but many of them are reabsorbed into regular infantry units. By 1864, by the Overland campaign, whenever uh, Grant launches his Overland campaign, you see a lot of, of the, um, the newer units in the Confederate Army are absorbed old partisan ranger units because they're trying to draw as much manpower back into the Virginia vortex uh, of war as they can. So you see units transferred all the way up from Florida um, that had been partisan rangers kind of absorbed back into the Virginia war as a result. So, so is there, in terms of the manpower, that's where it's going. Um, and that's how the process goes. But in terms of reasoning, limited results, problematic people, uh, problems with criminality also, um, and, and, and by and large, a lack of discipline in those units had uh, an effect. And ultimately, the Confederate Congress by early 1864 really was, was not interested in denying a guy like Robert E. Lee much of anything. And so when Robert E. Lee actually finally wrote the Confederate Congress, his opinion about the Partisan Ranger Act and about the Partisan Ranger Service, you know, he indicted it for many of its problems, and a big one was discipline, and he had a lot of problems with it as a result of that, but he also, you know, he was worried about manpower every single day in 1864, and he wanted to draw that manpower back into the Army of Northern Virginia. He simply could not see wasting a single soldier operating in his own independent war whenever they were needed to defend the Confederate capital at Richmond. Okay, so obviously we know it was a massive problem, guerrilla warfare in the southern states. And how did this affect the people that lived there on a day-to-day basis? And also, what was the Confederate government's response to the ones that are literally just in it for their own gains? You know, the guys that stayed at home literally just to rob their own people, basically, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, it, it varies from place to place. Uh, the the response, in part because the Confederate government has limited home guards and militia 
uh, to regulate the actions of local people anywhere in, in the South. But um, what they essentially do is they turn their conscription effort, their conscription enforcement effort at the local level uh, against dissident citizens and people who are fighting back against the conscription or who were unionists who were fighting back, or even people who were sort of criminally oriented but were pro-Southern. So what you end up having in many areas, places like Arkansas or Central North Carolina or uh, parts of the St. John's River region of Florida, um, parts of Mississippi, uh, the Free State of Jones area that we, we were talking about, parts of Northern Alabama, um, and certainly Missouri. What you ultimately see is home guard units of the Confederate government. In, in North Carolina, there are about 4,000 home guards for the whole state. Those people are kind of redirected toward making sure the conscription goes forward efficiently and keeping these people under control. Now, a lot of the time, they don't have enough manpower even to do it themselves. So they have to call in from time to time regular Confederate infantry units to try to suppress this. And that does end up happening in 1863 and 1864, um, very notoriously um, in, in Central North Carolina, where they actually bring in Confederate regiments uh, right out of the um, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia to, to put this down, this sort of resistance to this con the conscription effort. Um, but you see it in many areas, it's highly localized. Some of it is regionally located in Appalachia. Um, if you've uh, followed the movie Cold Mountain, which is a delightful movie with Nicole Kidman, Renee Zellweger, um, uh, Jude Law, then, then you see uh, a kind of example of Home Guards units being used against deserters, recusant conscripts, uh, people who were reluctant to fight back, people who are deserting the Confederate Army and are, are getting kind of sucked into this localized violence. Um, so that, you know, one of the things I, I like the most about that film is I think it gets two, two things very, very right. One, it gets that home guard operating group uh, very accurate. The, the whole intersection with desertion, that issue is well done. The other, of course, is the first 20 minutes or so of the movie on the, the Battle of the Crater at Petersburg. That's inc just incredibly well done. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, so so it, it did vary from region to region exactly how this this um, this occurred. Women become crucially important in the course of these irregular conflicts because they often are the I, I think I, I talk about it in my book. I call them the gatekeeper role because they are often protecting, feeding. Um, you know, they're the screen to protect their male relatives, uncles, you know, cousins, brothers sons, um, you know, husbands who are hiding out or who are fighting back. It's often women who are out uh, doing the farming, making sure the foodstuffs are protected, and then uh, often communicating and transporting information uh, around in these kind of illicit secret lines uh, that are fighting back or who are, are invited um, uh, to fight in this kind of internal civil war that's going on within the South. Okay. So, um... I know you've spoke about a couple of these guys, but um, we've got, um, I'd like to talk about a couple of the characters, uh, particularly involved in the partisan ranger type uh, thing. So we've got John Hunt Morgan. So tell us about his involvement um, and also his famous raid, like you touched on a little bit, into Ohio. Is that correct? Yeah, this is great. I, you know, I grew up learning a lot about John Hunt Morgan uh, myself because 
a portion of his Indiana and Ohio raid in July of 1863 that's going on right at the, the same time as the Battle of Gettysburg and the Gettysburg campaign uh, is going on, actually comes close to my, my home area of the Ohio Valley, close to Steubenville, Ohio, where I was born. And, um, you know, he ultimately gets captured in Selineville, Ohio, um, in late uh, July 1863, and gets incarcerated um, in Columbus at Old Capitol Prison there. Um, but John Hunt Morgan, uh, they called him the Great Raider, uh, the Thunderbolt of the Confederacy. He was particularly adept and very, very charismatic, but, but particularly adept at a kind of um, people's war and raiding warfare along the border. He was very good at the use of the telegraph, he, for, especially for deception. He would often uh, go to the telegraph office in a community first, take it over, and then send out messages to um, other surrounding communities uh, to confuse the Union Army about his location and to make it seem like his, his force was uh, much larger than it actually was. He's often involved in jailbreaks. He's involved in uh, kind of supply operations for the Confederacy. Um, uh, the Union Army thinks of him as a kind of thief, um, as, a, as a robber, um, as a criminal figure. Um, because of his operations along the border, uh, but he is a regular cavalry officer. He is commissioned. Um, he he was a kind of um, autodidact, I guess you would say, when it came to military tactics and strategy. He had served in uh, the militia earlier um, in his career before the Civil War, but he's not a West Pointer uh, like a guy like Jeb Stewart. But he is, in, in some ways, parallel uh, to John Mosby um, in many ways in Virginia, although Mosby was uh, officially a partisan ranger. But Morgan's command eventually grows uh, to the size of a division um, over the course of his career in the Confederate Army. One of the units that's in his uh, division is actually a sanctioned partisan ranger unit um, under, um, um, uh, under uh, Stovepipe Johnson, a uh, very famous uh, Confederate regimental commander out of Kentucky who loses his eyesight. Uh, they called him Stovepipe because of uh, a sort of faux cannon that he built out of a stovepipe early on in the war and convinced the Union Army that he actually had a cannon across the river when it was actually just a stovepipe oh. and, uh, and some wheels. Uh, fascinating, um, some of the fascinating incidents that, that these guys are involved in. But, um, but Morgan ultimately meets uh, a very brutal end. And, and, and if, if anything, his story is somewhat symbolic and indicative in its end to many of the people who are uh, active in the guerrilla conflicts of the war. He is, he's, he's hunted down by a special unit uh, that is um, organized to, to go and get him uh, in Greenville, Tennessee in uh, late 1864. He's hunted down while he's actually uh, sleeping um, at, at a mansion. He is in his nightshirt. He sort of shimmies down um, the side of the house and ultimately killed in uh, the garden right outside of a mansion where he'd been sleeping the night. And they, um, they sort of drag his body through um, the streets of Greenville, Tennessee to, to cheering Union soldiers. Um, that is um, the end. It's, it's an inglorious end to one of the most important figures probably in the history of, of civil war guerrilla warfare. Uh, but I think it's one that's indicative of just how brutal this particular type of conflict could be.
uh, during the war. I, I think so much of the time when we think of the American Civil War, we think of a very controlled war, um, a, very, um, a very honorable war, um, and it certainly had its moments. But it, it, it was also a civil war, and it, and it did have its, its moments where you, you see harbingers of both uh, the past, whenever wars became incredibly brutal uh, towards civilians, uh, and the future um, in the 20th century and 21st century, where we see the intersection of, of irregular violence and terrorism and the consistent involvement of civilians at the hands of, of armed people. Yeah, so they were, they were glad to get rid of him then. Pain in the backside, by the sounds of it, to the Union anyway, to, uh, you know, he must have caused absolute terror to some of those people, especially in Ohio, you know, because the war very, you know, didn't get very much further than, you know, and we always like to think of the high water mark of the Confederacy as Gettysburg, don't we, you know, Pennsylvania, but, you know. Uh. Yeah, in many ways, you know, I, I, I've used the, the phrase, the, the high water mark, um, to describe Morgan's raid whenever it comes to raiding warfare itself. Like, I, I really think that Morgan's Indiana and Ohio raid really is kind of the high water mark of Confederate raiding warfare, uh -huh. uh, at least in, in terms of its irregular um, active component. And, and he certainly was a very efficient officer early on in the war in 1862 and early 1863. His real problem, Darren, is um, after that raid, his unit, his, um, his force gets so cut up and many of his best officers and men are captured. Many of them end up in Camp Douglas out in Chicago, which is probably arguably the most brutal of the Union prisons for Confederates. It's, it's certainly right up there in the top two or three, but, but really pretty bad. A lot of his guys end up there, some of the officers in other places, but his unit is, is severely diminished by that raid. And uh, he's never really able to recruit the same kind of, 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 of officer, of, of soldier that had made him famous in the beginning. And even, you know, even horse flesh begins to get difficult by that point in the war for him down in Kentucky. So, um, you know, I spent a good bit of time out the Filson Historical Society a couple of years ago researching him, researching his command um, out in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, you can understand what made him successful. You're really in the middle of horse country there. Very, very adept horse people uh, live in that region of Kentucky and, and surrounding regions. But when you lose those people to capture, um, it's very difficult to replace them. It's difficult to replace that experience. And I think when we think about the Confederate Army generally over the course of the war or the Union Army, I think one of the things that often gets lost is we forget about the people that you lose in battle, whether they be captured or killed or missing, and what that does to the next engagement or the next campaign. I mean, if you look at Robert E. Lee's army at Chancellorsville, Lee loses something like 40 regimental commanders, majors, lieutenant colonels, colonels, uh, senior captains um, who had taken over regiments. You know, Lee's successful at Chancellorsville. It's his greatest victory of the war, but you can't replace 40 regimental uh, colonels overnight, you know, and, and that kind, I mean, we talk about the loss of Stonewall Jackson there. It's, that's important, right? I mean, it's clearly important yeah. Jackson was an incredible officer, but you also lose those 40 regimental colonels, you know, and lieutenant colonels. And that's the engine, isn't it, of the of the army, you know, that, you know, those lower down guys, they're the ones that keep the men going, you know, 
Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, that's the you know it's the glue of of the army in some ways. The, the group that's doing the training, the daily monitoring of soldiers, making sure these guys don't get sick, make make sure they dig the latrine pits a little farther away from camp, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, so all of that, you know, I think is important. But but in the case of Morgan, that's what happens to him. Attrition mm -hmm. really tore his command up. Um, and that July 63 raid was costly to him. But like you're saying, in Ohio, the governor of Ohio, David Todd, during that raid, he fills something like 600 militia units during the course of that raid. I mean, they're all over the counties, all over Ohio. They're rushing guys into the militia because they don't know where Morgan's going to go next. And they <laughs> want somebody That's there to go. Yeah. Um, I actually, I was so shocked when I first read that. I went back and yeah. actually checked the state legislature records in Ohio. Because so I was like, man, that sounds like a lot of company, a, a lot of militia companies. And sure enough, that's what it said. I was like, that's America. just incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. Uh, and again, this is what I love about American Civil War. And I say this to everybody, is these characters, you know, and there is so many of them. It's true. Oh, true. man, I love them. Um, anyway, um, I mean, some of, their, some of their stories you couldn't make up, could you? You know what I mean? Um, you know, I'm talking about everyone, you know, like Sickles and things like that. You know, some of these people are just oh, such yeah. characters. Anyway, so next Dan Sickles was, is one of the best. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, terrible. come on, this guy, you know. Oh, I love him <laughs> so much. Anyway, so John Mosby is the next character I'd like to know about. Um, sure. Sure. Um, um, oh, sorry, I'm, I, I, I'll skip over that one. There we go. John, I think this is John Mosby. That is. Yeah, that's, you know, Mosby with the facial hair. There. So the great ghost he's known as, I understand. He is. He is. He's, uh, they sometimes called him the Fox of Fauquier uh, for Fauquier County, uh, which was another area where he was operating. It was one of the four counties known as Mosby's Confederacy, where he operates during the war. Uh, but Mosby's buried up in Warrenton, Virginia. And I would encourage, you know, any of your viewers, if you get a chance and you're, you're in the state of Virginia and you want to visit um, Mosby related sites, uh, Warrenton is a good place to start because you can go visit Mosby's own grave, but then just a few yards away, you can visit the graves of people like R.P. Montjoy, uh, one of the captains of the 43rd Battalion of Virginia Coward that's actually killed during the war. Um, some of the other members of Mosby's command are actually buried in that same cemetery with, uh, with their old commander. But John Sickleton Mosby is um, really an American original, you know, in many ways. I'm equally as impressive um, as Morgan in, in many ways not a West Pointer. He's a UVA educated lawyer. He spends a little bit of time in jail uh, whenever he was an undergraduate because he nearly killed someone as an undergraduate um, at UVA. Of course, he did what a lot of people do when they go to prison. He studied for the law. Uh, he became a lawyer once he was released from prison. Uh, goes on to have a fairly successful legal career throughout his entire life. Uh, but but an autodidact when it came to the war, he begins as a low-ranking uh, scout in a collateral unit of Jeb Stewart's command on the peninsula. And eventually he's given more and more independent um, freedom and uh, eventually recruits his own unit, beginning with a company and building it all the way out to a battalion. By the end of the war, uh, more than a thousand people um, are on the roster for what becomes uh, Mosby's Rangers, uh, the 43rd Battalion of Virginia Cavalry. He was um, he was a he was a reader of of early military history, especially uh, the, the the campaigns and operations of uh, Francis Marion in South Carolina, 
the famed Swamp Fox. He read a good bit about Light Horse Harry Lee, uh, the, um, the father of Robert E. Lee, who was a, a well-known partisan leader in Virginia during the uh, American Revolution. He was an interesting guy throughout the war, very charismatic, but he was not an impressive physical specimen. He was uh, a, a kind of a short guy and uh, didn't weigh very much. He gets wounded several times during the course of the war. And, uh, you know, he meets Robert E. Lee during the course of the war. Lee tells him that the one complaint that he has about Mosby uh, and his operations is that he's always getting wounded and uh, that he's more concerned about his safety and losing him. <laughs> Mosby, for his part, in his own memoir, uh, talks about how he thought that Robert E. Lee took an interest in him in part because of Lee's own father. He said, I think he was curious about me because he didn't really know his own father very well. Of course, Lee's father had uh, been kind of a presence of absence in his own life, had ended up down in the Caribbean and then uh, dies in, in Georgia trying to get back from the, uh, the Caribbean whenever Robert E. Lee was fairly young. Uh, but um, of course, that, you know, kind of famous, famous hero, you know, a very good friend of George Washington. Um, and, and Mosby kind of knew all of that. And he thought that Lee took an interest in him because of that mm -hmm. uh, during the course of the war. Uh, you know, he's got so many famous raids and operations during the course of the war. There's the, the, the famous operation where he captures Edwin Stoughton, the Brigadier General um, up in Northern Virginia and the Fairfax uh, Fairfax Courthouse raid. We actually, uh, he actually takes captured this Union Brigadier General in his bed while he's sleeping, and he wakes the Union General up, and he's oh, yeah. <laughs> remember that story? Do you remember? No, that? I, I could imagine what he says. Oh. It's a fantastic story. The uh, the the Brigadier General Edmund Stoughton sort of turns over, you know, in his bed, and he's like, he he thinks it's an aide that's waking him up, and he says. Uh, so what's going on? And, and uh, Mosby says to him, he's like, have you heard of John Singleton Mosby? And Stoughton says, yes. Uh, have you captured him? And Mosby says, no, but he's captured you. <laughs> and uh, so he, you know, he takes him captured. Oh, Abraham Lincoln hears about this story. Uh, and I mean, this is not far from, you know, D.C. I mean, they were really concerned of, of Mosby coming in and potentially taking Lincoln captured. Yeah, and surprise. He, <laughs> They used to take up the boards over the, the bridges, you know, in across the Potomac because they were worried Mosby would ride into D.C. and capture Lincoln. But Lincoln hears about this and he's like, you know, I can make a brigadier general out of just about anybody. But the loss of horses in that raid, well, mm -hmm. I can't create horses out of thin air. So he was more he was more concerned about the loss of the horses that Mosby um, was able to capture in. But that's just one example. Uh, Miskel Farm is another example. I mean, Gosh, you know, when I was a kid, when I was first reading about this stuff, Miskel Farm might have been my favorite and most interesting engagement of the Civil War, because that's the one where uh, John Singleton Mosby and his guys are in a farmyard up in northern Virginia, and there are a couple of hundred Union cavalry that are hot on pursuit on their tail, and they had been in this farmyard that none of them even have their saddles on their horses, Mosby's, uh, Mosby's rangers. I mean, they, Mosby's like sleeping in a barn and he, he gets up, realizes that the Union cavalry is moving into the barnyard. They take down the fence rails and, and let all the Union cavalry into the, into the farmyard. And then they put the fence rails back up thinking they've got Mosby trapped. You know, Mosby's got about 40 guys with them. Union cavalry's got about 200. I mean, they are literally 
surrounded uh, just about in this farmyard and they fight their way out. They are so good with a brace of Colt or Remington pistols on horseback that when they're facing off against a Spencer repeater or a Sharps repeater uh, that you have to load on horseback, after you, um, after you fire your shots out of a Spencer or a Sharps and you run out, uh, they have the advantage because you know a brace of two or four or six pistols gives you an awful lot of firepower, especially close in. And they managed to fight their way out and actually route that Union cavalry um, that was in that yard. I mean, that just, you know, that, that was one of those operations that were those engagements of the American Civil War that really captured my enthusiasm and excitement um, mm -hmm. early on in my career. And it's, it's a really exciting uh, period, isn't it? Uh, that, um, in, you know, yeah, it's amazing. Um, I can understand why you uh, got into it now. Um, so um, anyway, how were the partisan rangers looked upon by the rest of the Confederacy? You know, because technically they are sort of part of the Confederacy, aren't they? Some of these rangers. But, yeah, that's a great picture right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but how is how are they looked upon by the other? You know, the other. The, they are. I mean, I suppose it, it, the real guys. You know. If you'd like yeah, to it does that. vary. You know, I mean, the senior leadership. By and large, uh, especially the West Point trained officers of both armies, uh, don't really like guerrilla warfare, irregular conflict very much. I mean, obviously, they're, they're dealing with criminality. They're dealing with units that sort of disappear. Uh, they're dealing with the issue of legality, which is a big one that comes up during the course of the war. Are these units legal operators? What do they have to be to be legal um, what do they have to be to be lawful operators during the course of uh, lawful soldiers during the war? Should they get prisoner of war status when they're captured? All of these legal questions kind of come up. And, you know, it, it varies because, the, you know, the Union uh, uh, Army and the, the U.S. government has a different kind of legal system than the Confederate whenever it comes to considering some of these issues um, during the course of the war. Um, they have different people in charge of making these decisions. And, um, you know, Ultimately, the West Point trained officers, even in the Confederate Army, by and large, are pretty skeptical to not liking uh, these groups. And I mean, Lee is one example. He likes Mosby personally. He thinks a lot of the operations that Mosby is able to do. He shields Mosby specifically whenever the Partisan Ranger Act is repealed in February of 1864. But by and large, Lee is critical of the Partisan Rangers and the Partisan Ranger Act. Joseph E. Johnston is another one who, when he goes on record about guerrilla warfare and about the Partisan Rangers, he's highly critical, thinks it's a waste of manpower. Of course, Johnson's one of the highest ranking uh, pre-war um, U.S. Army officers to come over to the Confederacy. He'd been uh, quartermaster general in the, the U.S. Army before he uh, personally decides to, uh, to secede. So, um, you know, these, these very, very high ranking senior members of the Confederate Army are even... Um, concerned early on and critical in 1863 and 1864, uh, mostly on the, the, the issue of manpower, but also on conduct. Uh, if from the Confederates' legal standpoint, this often gets kind of shuttled into the Secretary of War office in the Confederate government. The uh, Confederates have six secretaries of war over the course of the four years of the war. Uh, five confirmed and one interim. Um, and so it depended on the specific Secretary of War, how it was handled. 
but uh, most of them um, ultimately end up coming down with the legal opinion of trying to protect partisan rangers as lawful soldiers if they wear uniforms, if they remain in independent operations, but communicating with a regular army uh, unit uh, or regular army chain of command. So, um, it, you know, when it comes to the union side of this with the union army, um, you know, you got particularly um, inflamed opinion uh, among people like William Tecumseh Sherman, Ulysses S. Grant, Benjamin Butler, um, some of the leading figures of, of the war on the union side, are at times involved in considering what to do with captured partisans, captured guerrillas, uh, captured people who um, look like they're independently using um, assassination. And ultimately, uh, someone like Grant comes down when he's in overall command in the Western theater, and he's, he's highly critical. He's very stern in his response. He wants to, uh, to really kind of level the problem. He orders men captured and, and ultimately incarcerated. Um, he does not want to recognize them for prisoner of war status. He wants to send them on. Um, people like Sherman want to be able to have the latitude to uh, try and execute these people through drumhead court marshals. Um, that does happen in some areas uh, over the course of the war. So um, it really was a period, Darren, where the laws of war themselves are in somewhat a state of flux and consideration. Um, you get uh, Francis Lever's Code, General Orders Number 100, coming out in 1863. And that's the first attempt by the US Army to really codify the levels of soldier as it relates to irregular warfare. And I mean, it's, it's an opportunity also for the Union Army to ban uh, things like torture, which uh, it does do in Lieber's Code in 1863. So, so you can see the brightest legal minds on military law looking at some of the most difficult questions of the war as it relates to the Articles of War and how they should be applied. Ultimately, it requires new legal decision-making, new codes, new orders to try to deal with these problems. In part, they are growing out of these, these guerrilla conflicts. They're the most challenging uh, problem uh, for many commanders, what do you do with some of these guys when you capture them? Uh, you know, and 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 you know, how do you fight them in a way that still seems ethical um, and still is within the laws of, of war? So, so those are questions that the Union governments and uh, and the Confederate government both are are wrestling with over the course of the conflict. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I was going to say, what is the federal's, you know, response to this? This is a big problem, isn't it? You know, like you said, they're, they're dealing there. As well, it's a big problem, isn't it? You know, um, and Port Grant as well, you know. So what are the, what is their response to these these guys, you know? Yeah, you know, it, it did, you know, it did vary a little bit from commander to commander. But um, if, you, if you take, for example, Grant, um, his views are pretty consistent over the course of the war on the issue of guerrilla warfare. And I think, Darren, it grows a little bit out of his experience in Mexico uh, during the Mexican-American War. He and many other U.S. Army officers who had served in Mexico, who served in the Civil War, have experienced guerrilla warfare before. They have experienced um, 
what they considered Mexican guerrilleros, uh, Mexican bandits fighting the U.S. armies, whether it be Zachary Taylor's or Winfield Scott's in Mexico. And so Grant's got a pretty established idea of what he thinks should happen. He ultimately uh, thinks you need a stern response. He thinks you have to punish the local community and make them responsible for the type of warfare they are sponsoring. So uh, northern Mississippi, the area around Memphis in 1862, when Grant's there, I mean, he he really issues some pretty strong proclamations and says, you know, if you keep sponsoring this sort of stuff, when we capture these people, they are they are not going to be treated like legal combatants. They are they're going to be treated like criminals. And, um, you know, the Confederate response to that is ultimately to say, you know, it's war to the knife. We'll raise the black flag, things like that. Um, and, and, you know, gradually you see the sort of degeneration of. A, a conflict that is fought within the parameters of what people believe was civilized conflict or, uh, or lawful uh, combat degenerating into tit-for-tat revenge operations and responses. Now, uh, Grant ultimately doesn't, he's able to use pretty stern responses at the local level to avoid a kind of spiraling chaos situation, but there are other areas where you see the violence kind of spiral. And, um, and tit for tat revenge um, kind of happening. By the time they moved Grant uh, to the East in 1864, uh, John Singleton Mosby is a particularly big thorn in the side of the Union Army in terms of his raids on supply lines in the Shenandoah Valley, especially in the Northern uh, end of, of the Valley. You know, there is a moment where Mosby kind of just misses an opportunity right at the beginning of May, 1864, to capture or kill Grant whenever he's actually returning um, on a train, on an unmarked train down to uh, the, the um, Army of the Potomac in Northern Virginia, uh, down uh, about uh, near where the, uh, the Wilderness Campaign uh, battle was gonna be fought. He's, he's kind of making his move down toward there up in Northern Virginia, Mosby nearly gets the opportunity, kind of misses it by about a few minutes. Um, but Grant um, did everything in his power to go after Mosby and try to capture or kill him during the course of the war, um, ultimately unsuccessful in, in that, but Mosby ends up disbanding his unit, never officially surrendering at the end of the war. And fascinatingly, uh, Mosby goes on to be one of Grant's biggest allies and acolytes uh, during Reconstruction. He is actually Grant's campaign manager in Virginia for his presidential run at one point. Wow. He is active in supporting Grant hmm. and administration in Virginia. He becomes a Republican uh, during Reconstruction. He ultimately goes on to become U.S. consul to Hong Kong during the Rutherford B. Hayes administration. So uh, Mosby has a really fascinating life. Yeah. And, and I didn't know anything about Grant nearly being, uh, you know, killed by him. Christ, you know. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's close. You know, it's it's really it's close. And and you know, Grant Grant obviously he get he gets away and he gets back down to to um to where the Overland camp. That's one of their what ifs, isn't it? You know, Crikey. It is. Yeah, it's 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 a near run thing. But you know, Mosby, um, he was slippery. He was a slippery guy, and yeah. uh, tactically. Uh, one of the best practitioners of the mid-19th century at, at the tactics of guerrilla warfare. Okay, so another character I want to talk about, and uh, this is uh, particularly, uh, is, uh, so there's a guy called William T. Anderson, or 
bloody bill. And he's got a band of men, one being the future outlaw, Jesse James. Um, so please explain this guy's involvement in, in particular, a very disturbing event at a town called Centralia, Missouri. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the Bill Anderson war in Missouri, one that we haven't talked much about just yet, but you know, this is a different kind of conflict from the very beginning. You have the kind of intersection of Southern independence and a belief in Southern militancy intersecting at the local level with um, immigrant communities, in particular German immigrant communities that are leaning unionist or are very sternly and firmly unionist early on uh, during the war. You have um, you have some of the most brutal moments of the entire American Civil War coming out of the Missouri guerrilla conflict. And some of it comes out of dispossession. Some of it comes out of very personalized things that were done to some of these men. Some of it, I believe, is motivated in part by a kind of sadism that was within some of these men's own minds. Um, you know, the one interesting thing about warfare more generally, Darren, and, and even the American Civil War is that it sometimes hides criminals and very sadistic people in plain sight. Uh, because warfare by its nature involves killing, um, some people who were prone to that, even in civilian life, or prone to a kind of violence that, that might be excessive, they do kind of hide. And Bill Anderson, I think, was one of those people. Um, Anderson uh, originally starts out as a member of William Clark Quantrill's larger force in Missouri. And his group eventually becomes far more radical and far more deadly and eventually is a kind of offshoot of, of the Quantrill Raiders. Anderson was personally motivated in part because the Union Army had taken his, um, some female members of his family captive, and they were incarcerated at a prison. And ultimately that prison, because of an accident, um, they are killed at the prison when uh, part, of the, part of a building collapses. And um, Anderson blamed the Union Army for the death of his uh, female family members. And this kind of makes a guy who was sort of teetering psychologically, I think, at that point in the war, really uh, move into a much more excessive type of violence. Now, he starts um, notching in his sash um, every time he has killed a person um, during the war. He, um, he is... He, he begins to do somewhat bizarre things uh, with the bodies of Union soldiers um, after they are killed. And in the, in the case that you were mentioning there, the Centralia Massacre is, is what it becomes known as, the uh, um, sometimes called the Battle of Centralia, a Union Army unit that is actually sent specifically to hunt for uh, Bill Anderson and his unit is actually... Um, surrounded in a killing box. And I've, I've been to this battlefield and where this actually happened and stood in the middle of this field. It's a very eerie place. And if you get a chance to ever go to Centralia, Missouri, it's a, it's a site that's completely wholly owned by the, the city of Centralia. You can go out to the site, it's interpreted, and you can stand in the middle of this field. It's completely surrounded by trees on all four sides. And what happened was Bill Anderson and his men kind of lured these guys, these Union soldiers, into the middle of this field. 
and then they swung the killing box closed. They had it kind of surrounded on three sides. And once they all these Union soldiers had entered, they kind of swing the door closed and they annihilate this entire group of Union soldiers. After that um, incident, uh, you mentioned Jesse James, who rode with Bill Anderson uh, for a time. Um, it is alleged that, that James actually uh, personally killed the commander of the Union uh, unit himself. And um, ultimately, there are moments of um, uh, scalping uh, that are involved in this, even some um, body part uh, removal um, at, at the end. It's really one of the darkest of dark moments that, that you see come out of, of the war. But I think it's, it's not just about political motivations at, at that point. I think you have other motives interwoven and intersecting with the minds of these particular irregulars who are, are fighting. So, so I think here's where you see the American South and the American West meet. It's also where you see the intersection of criminality and warfare uh, meet. And I think ultimately in the case of Bill Anderson, um, you see like John Morgan, a very brutal end. Um, ultimately he is hunted down um, in Richmond, Missouri, killed. Uh, his body's drugged through the streets. In fact, there is a very notorious photo uh, taken of Bill Anderson in death. And if you look at that photo very closely, it has him in his gorilla shirt, uh, which is this kind of lovingly embroidered shirt, probably done by um, one of his loved ones, one of his female loved ones. And uh, the Union soldier is sort of holding Bill Anderson's hair and holding him up in the chair like this. Um, after his death to kind of show you that Bill Anderson's gone. It's a very interesting photo if you compare it to, say, the death photo of Che Guevara uh, okay. when he was killed uh, in Bolivia um, in the late 1960s um, in a partial Bolivian CIA operation. Um, very, very similar type of, of situation and, and event uh, for both those guys and their ends. But um, yeah, Bill Anderson, really notorious figure, fascinating guy, difficult one to pin down psychologically, uh, but um, certainly at one end of the extreme of, of the American Civil War. Yeah. And would you say that, you know, it's a lot of these guys riding with these guys, did they become some of the outlaws that we obviously see in the West eventually in the 1870s, you know, when you start seeing the expansion of more states and, you know... You do. Yeah, you, you, you do. And, and there's been some very good research and some good work done on this, the kind of intersection of, of the West and the South and where it meets and the kind of crucible of violence that you get poured out into uh, the Western states. But um, some of these people are young enough, like the James brothers, uh, Jesse and Frank, uh, the younger brothers, uh, Cole Younger in particular, um, that end up getting kind of um, spilled out into uh, what becomes the the frontier conflicts of the American West and the criminality of bank robbing. Um, they learn some of their best tactics uh, during the American Civil War. And they, here is where the war does not end in 65. It keeps right on going. There's a kind of um, continuation of violence, but it's, but it's a life of violence for some of these guys. And, and that's why I think it's, it's interesting to note that sometimes wars hide. Uh, criminals to begin with, because some of these guys, 
they were living a life of violence no matter what. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they, they keep it going on into the late 1860s, in some cases into the early 1870s, and, and ultimately get uh, killed in their own right uh, far after the war. But, um, you know, I think if, if, you, if you really want to get a sense of this, and you, have, you don't have a lot of time to read about it, but you want to just watch one good Hollywood film that I think captures this uh, better, than maybe, better than maybe anything else is um, the, the film Ride with the Devil. On okay, the yeah. Film. Uh, mm -hmm. From the late 1990s, it stars yep. Joel Kilcher and uh, Jonathan Reese Myers, Toby Maguire. Mm -hmm. um, Jonathan Reese Myers, in particular, his character Pitt Mackison, is sort of loosely based on Bill Anderson. And if you if you watch the film and you watch his progression and evolution, I think Myers' portrayal is brilliant. I mm -hmm. think um, not only do I think it's one of his best roles, I think ultimately he captures. The personality and the kind of the de-evolution of a person mm -hmm. and the, uh, the dehumanization um, that can go on with a warrior in this kind of conflict during the American Civil War. So, so I, you know, I would say Ride with the Devil is a great one. If you, if you just have a couple hours and you just want to get a, a taste of the Missouri conflict during the American Civil War, how different it was from uh, from say from say Gettysburg or or you know or, or Antietam or or that that war um, of conventional combat and and, and large scale armies, it, it, it's a very different war and it's very well done. Yeah. So overall, it had a massive effect on the American Civil War, didn't it? Guerrilla warfare, really. But did it have an outcome? Uh, did it did it have an effect on the outcome of the war? Do you think? Yeah, um, you know, and this is the other big question. You know, often we get the scale question. You know, how big, how many units, how many people were involved, that that kind of thing. And then we get you to the question, sort of the back end question: Did it mean defeat in eighteen sixty five? What was its legacy? I like the question, you know, kind of posed a little bit broader because I think if you look at Reconstruction and you look at the violence of Reconstruction, you see uh, the continued effects of irregular warfare you see a continuation of the violence of the American Civil War uh, related to uh, consonant issues of racial control in the American South. You see the reemergence, in some cases, even in the very people of units that use uh, paramilitary tactics, guerrilla tactics, terrorism, uh, just a few weeks and months and years later after uh, the surrender of Robert E. Lee's army in April, 1865, or the surrender of Joe Johnson's army, um, a little bit later, you see a continuation. So in some ways, the guerrilla conflicts of the American Civil War have a longer legacy and, and they do go on. Um, in, in other ways, you know, does it, does it mean victory or defeat? And did it prolong the war? That's another kind of interesting consonant question to the one you're asking. Um, I think in, in some areas, it did enable the Confederacy to prolong the war by some time. Um, it does delay the Union Army in some ways. Does it ultimately prevent Confederate defeat or could it have won Confederate independence if they had used it in a wider way? Ultimately, I don't think so. I think that ultimately, um, even if Robert E. Lee had tried to convert the Army of Northern Virginia in mid-1865, in April of 1865, into a guerrilla force, I have a new article coming out about this in October, that's sort of why I kind of bookend with this. Um, ultimately, I think it would have been unsuccessful. I think Lee makes the right strategic diagnosis in April of 1865, which is uh, 
disbanding his army and turning it into smaller uh, guerrilla bands uh, that would have been uh, not overarchingly directed had very little chance of any kind of uh, Confederate independence or, um, or sustaining Confederate nationalism. Um, what it probably would have done was lead to even more internecine violence, even more hardship on civilians, women and children would have inevitably been drawn into it, more social chaos at a time whenever the system of slavery is fully collapsing, which would have led to even more, um, I think, hardship and violence at the local level. So um, yes, it has an impact, but is it is it the kind of impact that we've kind of traditionally been asking the question from? I, I think some people have kind of always come at this question of guerrilla warfare, uh, folks like Gary Gallagher at, uh, you know, it didn't prolong the war, it didn't stop the war, um, so therefore it's irrelevant. I just see it differently. I come at this from a slightly different angle and I do see the prolonged violence. I do see the legacy of it. Um, does Robert E. Lee's army still surrender in 1865? Sure, and I think Lee made the right call, strategically speaking, for his own army at that point. Um, but he was offered the chance to consider this question by Edward Porter Alexander, um, his, um, his famed artillerist from Gettysburg, who proposes this idea. And uh, Lee says, you know, guerrilla warfare is a young man's game. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, I'm, yeah. I'm sort of paraphrasing here. And he says, you know, it's a young man's game. I'm an old man. There's nothing left for me to do but go and surrender. Great. If you young men want to go off and run around like partridges in the wilderness, you can. But I don't think we're going to win our independence that way. And it probably will lead to greater hardship. And that, I think, is exactly right in, in many, yeah. many ways. I see your point there. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, I mean, you've done so, you know, you've done some great work on it, mate. And uh, I'd like you to keep that up, you know, because I'm definitely interested in it. I know there was a lot of other people that are interested in it as well. So. Thanks, Darren. Um, so I know you have written three books on the subject, haven't you? So uh, I will get around to buying them and reading them one day, I promise. Um, so you've got The Gorilla Hunters. Um, you've got another one called The Prize Winning um, about Daniel Bright. Is that correct? And Rebels Against the Confederacy. Yeah. Um, and executing Daniel Bright. Yeah, executing. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, you know, that was a that was a real passion project for me when I was when I was first starting out. And I found this execution of this alleged partisan ranger down in North Carolina by a Union Brigadier General named Edward Augustus Wilde, who was a Harvard-trained physician who had actually fought in the Crimean War, interestingly enough. He was a, he was a sort of uh, attache medical um, surgeon in the armies of the Turkish Sultan uh, during the Crimean War. Well, anyway, he ends up a Union Brigadier General. He's an abolitionist, very, very radical abolitionist. He ends up executing this guy in the field. And so I was really interested in unearthing what the motives and the course of that guerrilla conflict was in northeastern North Carolina. And I, I just kind of revolved the whole book around this whole set of questions of trying to figure out who these people were, what their motives were, uh, what the nexus of violence was in that particular region. And it, it was it was really a fun project. Yeah, cool. And also, we've got to talk about it because, you know, to me, you're a celebrity. You know, you was on the History Channel. That's that's enough for me. Um, so you was in the Grant documentary. And I've got to say, mate, I've really enjoyed I've watched that. I must have watched it about six times, um, you know, but they, they, it's not on there at the moment. So I can't watch it, but they're taking it off. Um, yeah. So just tell us how that opportunity came up for you and what was that, what was that like for you, you know, to be to be to get that call, you know, to be asked to talk on that. Oh, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, it was, it was really a, a great opportunity. I really enjoyed uh, working with the, the team up there in, in New York and, and working with the History Channel. Um, Darren, you know, 
as far as how they found me, I think they found me in, in probably much the way that, that you did. Um, they watched a, a YouTube video of me speaking. Um, and uh, I, I think it might've been the one where I was on C-SPAN a couple of years back. They, they really liked what they saw and they, they sent me an email and said, would you be interested in coming up to talk about um, Ulysses S. Grant? Um, we're gonna do this big documentary series. It's gonna be a multi-night thing. It's gonna be about six hours. Um, we just like to interview you for your thoughts. And so they, they brought me up to New York and uh, started firing questions at me. And, and initially, a lot of the questions were about the Overland campaign, about Grant's, um, his promotion to full lieutenant general, and, and kind of, you know, kind of his military history. And then um, a few months later, they, they wrote me back and they said, we really liked your early segment. Would you come up and tape another segment with us? And we'd kind of like to expand your role. And so that, it was at that point, they kind of spent more time with me talking about Grant's presidency and reconstruction and his earlier life, his, his time in the Mexican war. Um, so that was sort of how, how that all uh, came about. And really, you know, I enjoyed it. It was, it was um, you know, it was really a great opportunity. And, and I thought it, it really came out well. I was really happy to be in there with all those other great historians and, 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 and folks that, that, that they had. So it was great. The main question is, did you get a free copy? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I did buy some for my family, though, for Christmas. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because that'd be a bit cheeky, wouldn't it? Yeah, we'll, we'll let you in our documentary, but you got to buy it, you know. <laughs> no, I did. You'll be happy to know, you know, whenever it debuted, my whole family came over and we had yeah. tea. We had tea that night and sat right. around. Right. Tea right. And brilliant. Was what we did. Honestly, awesome. mate, I really, you was brilliant in that, honestly. I, 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 definitely. So anyway, um, last question. So what's it like in uh, Lexington, Virginia? And uh, obviously you're at the Washington Lee University, you've been there. How long have you been there for? And, um, you know, how, how are you enjoying that? Yeah, um, well, this is my ninth year teaching at WNL Washington and Lee University. Um, it's a national liberal arts school in uh, the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. We have about 2000 students here. Um, we're a school that attracts some of the, you know, the best young liberal arts students in the country. A lot of our kids apply to uh, to Ivy League schools, and we kind of get, we kind of get the, the lucky kids that that don't end up going to Yale or Princeton. We we get a lot of those kids, and um, so I'm really fortunate. I get to teach really bright kids who are very very interested in doing the reading and and who are engaged in the American Civil War. We're we're lucky enough to be um, two National Historic Landmarks at at WNL. Our campus itself, the front campus, is a registered NHL site. So that, that picture that you've got up there, um, that's, that's an NHL site, one of the top 3% of American historic sites. And then um, on our front campus also is Lee Chapel, which is a separate, uh, separate designated site, uh, another NHL site. And that's where Robert E. Lee and Lighthorse Harry Lee, um, the collateral Lee family, um, his sons are buried. Uh, uh, for five years um, after the American Civil War from uh, October of 1865 until October of 1870, Robert E. Lee was the president of what was known then as Washington College. And Lee had been an educational administrator before the Civil War. He was superintendent at West Point in the, um, in the 1850s. Um, and he does a lot to kind of change the curriculum at this university um, before it even is a university. He he works on adding a law school, ultimately, a journalism program. He's highly active as an educational administrator, and he's ultimately responsible in many ways for the school not financially going under after the American Civil War. His reputation, um, the kind of rebuilding of the college itself, 
uh, and recruitment. But I mean, it's a great place to to not just be a history major and teach history, but it's a you know it's it's a great place to do history because the site itself Got is the history. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, it's just such an important historic site itself. Even if it wasn't a college, you know, the it would it would probably be like almost like a national park. Yeah, um, definitely. So it's, it's got, great. really is. You've got the military institute up the road as well, haven't you? We do. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's it abuts our campus. I mean, literally VMI and WNL's campuses are right next to one another. Nice. And of course, uh, Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson, yeah. uh, probably uh, one of the most famous professors to ever teach at VMI there in the, the pre-war, uh, pre-Civil War years. Uh, of course, George C. Marshall. Uh, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He was a graduate of, um, of VMI, um, probably uh, their most famous alum. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's just sort of oozing you know, history to, to live in Lexington, Virginia, which is, is where I work. You know, I live and I work in Lexington within walking distance of campus. Absolutely love it. Brilliant. Well, Barton, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, oh, hang on. I want to say one um, yeah, absolute pleasure talking to you. You've been absolutely brilliant as always, and uh, thank you very much. So what I will do is I will leave all the links to your books, to, you know, Grant documentary, all the relevant stuff that we've talked about, guys. Go and look up about the irregular warfare and guerrilla warfare and the Civil War, because it is an important part of the Civil War. And, you know, we've got to keep delving into it because it's interesting. Thank you, Barton. Cheers. Thanks, Darren. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your program. It was a great time. Yes.